psychedelics are visual, intensely visual, overwhelmingly visual, actually. And so uh, it is a, it's now that they're available in the 20th and 21st century to the common person, you know, who looks a little for them. Uh, It enables you to witness a perspective that is uh, undeniably one of the highest perspectives that humans are capable of. Yeah. You know, of of this kind of inward journeying and seeing. So this new territory of seeing, I think, is of great interest to visual artists. For sure. You know, to attempt to begin to wrestle the the visual paradoxical, strange worlds that we encounter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we have Alex and Allison Gray on the podcast. We talk about art, the sacred, and the key to making love stay. But before we get started, here's your reminder to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss an episode. And as always, if you love the show, please leave us your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated and helps us reach new people. Now, it's time for some news to trip over. Activists in Colorado have filed ballot initiatives to legalize psilocybin and establish psychedelic healing centers. Denver, Colorado's capital, was the first city in the U.S. to decriminalize psilocybin nearly three years ago. Still, there are no currently legal ways for Colorado residents to access psilocybin-assisted therapy. The new initiatives would enable this access, representing a huge step forward for psychedelics in the state of Colorado. Now on to today's episode. I'm here with Alex and Allison Gray, world-renowned visual artists known for creating their iconic spiritual psychedelic paintings. Alex and Allison are the co-founders of the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, or COSM, a nonprofit organization and contemporary public chapel as a sanctuary for spiritual renewal through contemplation of transformative art in New York. Their work has been praised since the 1970s for their otherworldly and signature styles that are instantly recognizable to those that know them. Their creativity is unbound, and the inspiration behind both of their works leave one hugely intrigued and introspective. So thank you both for joining us today, and Welcome to Field Tripping. Thank you, Ronan. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. So to get started, yesterday was Groundhog's Day, a day forever memorialized in the movie of the same name starring Bill Murray, in which the same day repeats over and over and over again. In some ways, the last two years of the pandemic have felt like Groundhog's Day. And in many ways, personal growth, I find, feels like Groundhog's Day because, at least in my experience and from the advice of my friends too, Often when you think you've made a breakthrough, the universe likes to test you on that so it can feel like you're doing the same thing over and over. So two questions to start. First, what has the experience of the pandemic helped you to understand in your personal lives? And second, what is the focus of your personal growth these days? Yeah, those are really deep and profound and ongoing questions, I think, Ronan, for uh, for me. Uh, the pandemic. It uh, feels like an initiation, uh, both in a personal way, but also 
in a global sense. You know, it's done what a lot of, um, you know, happens for people on when they get connected, usually with a, a spiritual path. You'll see something tragic and dramatic usually uh, can initiate that. Right. And usually it involves uh, the passing of life. Right. And so we've been uh, on a long retreat, I think, uh, as a civilization, you know, like uh, we're both trying to sequester, but we're trying to have life as uh, normal too, you know, and find yeah. normal again. And, and uh, so this, this kind of thrashing is it, it that's what leads people really to the uh, to the spirit true you know is just this what can we do you know and uh, I think it's also been a time when people have been digging in discovering uh, psychedelics again you know if as long as they're holed up at home and uh, things like that I think that there's been despite the really uh, you know, uh, incredibly difficult and filled with uh, death and filled with uh, illness and filled with uh, tragic loss, you know, uh, for throughout our culture. You know, this, there's, a, there's a kind of sense of grief also that has uh, been hanging over us. So now it's affecting people personally, but we're seeing it also in terms of the earth. Yep. Cli the effects of climate change, you know, all of these kinds of things, they're coming up and we're able to see them now and, uh, and to contemplate on them. It should be the time of great reflection mm -hmm. and spiritual renewal for people if they're able to find a way to make ends meet in this very difficult time. So uh, it's a soul, um, you know, deepening and heightening uh, moment for me personally. And I think that for the world uh, and for our, our nation, for sure. I, I had, uh, I wanted to say that uh, you know it, there, there's the personal, and then there's the um, there's our social sculpture. Alex and I, you know, call Cosm our social sculpture, and and you know it's it's uh, you know it it did uh, become an incredible learning experience for, for us at Cosm, where we live and work with um, twenty to twenty three people here, uh, and they all, you know, live right around this center, this room that we're sitting in. And, um, so, you know, we, we were an event space and we had many big events right. and Alex and I traveled almost nonstop for a long time. And, uh, so COVID, uh, stopped us dead in our tracks, but we didn't miss a beat. We didn't miss a full moon. We haven't missed a full moon for over 18 years. So, we uh, continued to hold the full moon ceremonies uh, virtually, which changed us. And we've become, you know, we have, you know, well over 100 programs, uh, you know, in the last two years that we've produced that are on our YouTube channel. So we became something else. Right. We didn't even have a podcast. Okay. <laughs> and we kept saying we were going to have a podcast. And Tyler came here to be our podcast host. But we hadn't started it. 
because we were just so doggone busy yeah. doing every other thing, many, many things, publishing too. So, and events. So now we we are, we, we, we grew up and uh, we're learning and uh, we're learning this other, this other whole skill and, and, uh, and Alex and I are changing our programs and teaching online and, you know, very different and, and actually uh, learned an incredible amount about what, you know, what, what do we need? What do we really need to continue to sur thrive? We say, we call it sur thrival. Sur thrival. But, uh, like you know, that. sur thrival, you know, what do we need really the minimum if we could like, you know, cause we want to come out of this in some ways transformed. And so in our personal life, I think we, you know, many of us, all of us have been experimenting a great deal with transformation in our, uh, in our diet, our exercise, all the things that we always say we should do, becoming, you know, better artists, you know, getting our work out there online, yeah. you know, like, you know, making our, our, our stuff and our outreach more interesting and more engaging and have, making more, making more friends. Making more friends is our New Year's resolution every year. Cool. And uh, we have gone from hundreds of people at the full moon to thousands of people. So we're making more friends and so many more members because people, we're doing much more outreach to people, you know, Australia, South America, you know, even South Africa and everywhere. So we, we're getting all, you know, the people from all over the world without leaving our lovely fireplace it's a beautiful you know, it's, fireplace for it's sure. been good it's <laughs> i hate to say it because i know so many people have suffered yeah and certainly it's stressful you know this whole unknowing part of our collective practice as a art church basically is that we're building a sacred space with you know the members are helping and everybody who buys stuff you know online winds up going into the fund of we got to keep rolling this thing. And so everything is going into Entheon, this thing we've been building, a sanctuary of visionary art to uplift the global community. So it's something that is coming and we hope this year, you know, and it's been something that has been, would have been very difficult to make these strides forward were we having to do the constant, uh, you know, on-site events. Yeah. So it has, uh, this, this shutdown has enabled us to completely, uh, give a new roof to this old house that we're in here, stuff mm. that we couldn't have done when we were having guests coming in right. and everything like that. Paved and, all of our roads. You know, it's like a, it's a property with with seven buildings on it. And wow. so, you know, but paving and it's, it's a quarter mile driveway. So it's, so at parking lots, we had to do all this to become public. You know, the town is not that far from the city and we're not going to just do it under the wire. You know, we have to, everything has to be, you know, just right. Coming up with all the funds to pave the road all at once and to do a 59 planes of this old house, which is an 1862 Victorian with 10 bedrooms that, has been our guest house. People have stayed here, and yeah. uh, no more, no more hospitality. You know, no more events, and uh, you know. So it's getting ready for something, right? For the next phase, we're still in the initiation, right? You know, we're still in the chrysalis, and it's 
you know, things are growing into something new, you know, and we're, we intend to be here to serve the psychedelic community when uh, things open up. Beautiful. What's going to be here is Entheon, which right. is a three-story, 12,000 square foot um, museum, really, of visionary art, contemporary visionary art and, uh, and art history. And um, it's where we're going to have our largest events. You know, we have a great hall where we can, you know, have hundreds of people in the room together. Someday. Which we didn't have. <laughs> we just had this living room where we could get, you know, maybe a hundred. And then there was remote viewing and yeah. lots of people outside waiting. Anyway, now we have, you know, we're going to have Entheon. We're going to open Entheon, which is what we said we would do in like 2011, right. January. <laughs> like this time, 2011, we were saying, okay, this is the year. 11, 11, 11, 11. We're going to get it open. It's a great number, you know. Anyway, <laughs> everything uh, has to be just right. It, it, it's uh, The timing is always perfect, right? It happens exactly it when it's supposed to. Um, so many questions coming out of that, but let, let's start with Entheon. Um, for anybody listening who hasn't seen it, uh, the design, I, I recommend that you go online and we'll provide links uh, in the show notes to this. But can you tell us about the inspiration for the design? Because it is a, a remarkable and, and striking vision uh, that you have for, for Entheon. So I'd love to hear the inspiration for it. Wow, thank you. I think it was in. Um, Tell everybody what been Entheon in, means, too. Okay. Well, uh, Entheon means uh, really a place to discover the God within. You know, it's like Entheogen. You know, the uh, you, you know to discover the God within. So, um, you know, and it more or less came out of our having visited Rome, and we went went to the Pantheon, you know, and here were all the gods, you know, that right. were uh, displayed at that time, you know, for the, uh, for the Roman people. And the, you know, that is a great idea. We've got to have a place where it's a, like a Pantheon. It acknowledges all the various uh, world wisdom traditions. And so these things can be symbolized in some ways, and at least they have the emblems or symbols of the different world religions. Right. How could you tie it all together? And uh, basically had a vision of a building as a head. It, the, the building is a head, but it, it has multiple faces. So it has, these are the multiple faces of God, basically symbolizing that you know they're massive 20 foot high faces and each with a little emblem of a different world religion uh in its forehead and uh so it it's just representative of uh all uh expressions of the divine are from uh, the single infinite source that birthed the cosmos, you know, and is still the ongoing miracle in our midst that we somehow bafflingly can't see, right. you know. Uh, but, you know, the psychedelic uh, really community has has seen it, you know. They're the people that stop believing in God of their parents and God that had been written in books and then found it themselves, you know, in their own bedrooms on acid. Right. And so 
Uh, God's got the place surrounded, basically, and uh, you can find many paths there, uh, and, and psychedelics is one of them. That's represented yeah. in the faces. Exactly. Yeah. So, Antion, it's the God within is also represented as the symbol, you know, of the transcendental unity of all the great wisdom traditions. Right. Do you... I've heard uh, religion described as institutionalized mysticism, and and the problem with that being that mysticism does not lend itself to institutionalization. Did you have any kind of concerns or conflict about having these, you know, religious symbols? Uh, given the, I guess, interplay of that, you know, and, and the fact that you said, you know, these people discovered. God in their bedrooms, not in 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 the churches and synagogues and and mosques necessarily. I mean, that's probably not a universal statement, but uh, just just wondering if that came up at all. Oh, it, it look, uh, you know, we were the chief exponents of the oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know, oh <laughs> uh, gosh, wouldn't want to go down that blind alley. You know, and so, but uh, we were talking with Bob Jesse. You know, Bob Jesse. I don't actually. Uh, the Council on Spiritual Practices. You have to. That man that. is a genius okay. and a real strategist. You know, he, he really has been helpful in helping the psychedelic renaissance uh, okay. be there. But he's not really looking for credit or any. I wonder any whether kind he would be like interviewed that. even. But, but anyway, yeah, what did he say? Anyway, he said. Because uh, I, I gave him that line, oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. <laughs> you know, and and uh, so uh, he said, Alex, a lot of people say that, you know, <sighs> but religion is such an important word. Uh, how can we give that word to the fundamentalists? Right. How can we just seed the ground, you know, and say, oh, I won't go there. Religion is too venerable a station and consideration of humanity. And it's important for us to reimagine God and to reconnect with the validity of the great traditions that have basically ushered these ideas from one generation to another. What's been the most valuable thing that we can discover in our lives? It's our, usually our connection with love and spirit. Well, I, and and yeah. so they have been saying that, even though there's been a lot of infighting and things like that. You get to the mystic core, yeah. basically, and there, all the mystics would get along. Right. right. I just wanted to say something about the visuals of... of Antion, there are 30 heads that are interconnected. And um, I, you know, but there's also secret writing band around the entire building, which is a, a nameless presence, a, you know, um, unpronounceable uh, letters representing the, well, the, the, uh, I mean, there, there are, uh, what is it? Is it two? There, I think two out of the five main religions are, are non-iconic. So I grew up in it with, with the great um, experience of my religion. I mean, there, there are many of us who actually grew up with religion and still have a good feeling about it in that we, we, you know, we, we're not fundamentalists. We, we take it, you know, what we need from it and, and enjoy it and, and just 
you know, and one of the things that we found with psychedelics is that the people who have mystical experiences, and this is personal, the personal mystical experiences on psychedelics, want to talk about it and they want to get together. They want to have a safe place where they can, you know, like hear about it, talk about it, where your show comes in, you know. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to hear more about other people's experiences. Those people are trying to find the others. Yeah. And we didn't know that, I don't think, when we started the full moon ceremonies in 2003, January. We we uh, were advised to start the full moon ceremonies in our home in Brooklyn uh, by a shaman friend who's a Yale graduate and a genius from Peru. And he, you know, he advised us to um, start them to pray about the, you know, our, our great, uh, I don't know, urgent desire to, to, to have a chapel of sacred mirrors. You know, we wanted to, you know, like have a chapel of sacred mirrors where the sacred mirrors could be permanently on view and actually used as a battery in a sense for healing and, you know, and meditation and like a place. Cause we were, we have always been social sculptors and, and, and mixed media artists and, okay. and, you know, uh, performance artists. So we wanted to create this installation and, uh, and make it sacred. It turned into a church. Right. I mean, it really didn't intend to be, but then we were doing everything that churches do it's like, you know, weddings, baby blessings and memorials. So like we, and, and regular gatherings, yeah. normal, you know, like you have to have mm-hmm. regular gatherings. And those are some of the things that, you know, they want to know if you're going to be a legit church which right. we became. And, uh, and, and I'm so glad because I do think that it would be incredible to have psychedelic churches. I think it's a place where people want to get together and, and discuss. And that's what religion is in our view, I think, which is basically a place to discover God within, a right. place where you can go and discover your own God, whatever it is. So I, I, I'm, I have never felt that the connected faces uh, are God, because God doesn't have a face in my experience, in my psychedelic, mystical experience. God did not have a face. God came to me through secret writing. And a lot of what we learn about God comes to us through reading and writing and, and you know, about people's experiences. So the heads to me are all connected, like the people of the community are connected. We're all interconnected, even though like in the, in the forehead of each head, there's a different world religion. There's like 30 different little medallions that, you know, represent the symbols of the world religions. And so, you know, the heads to me are, is the community coming together to experience God within. And then there's the evolutionary freeze. There's dragons going to the, the steeple head, you know, the, the, the four directions are represented in the steeple head of looking in four directions. So there's a lot of other detail and the heads, um, represent more the community than than the god it him her their <laughs> self yeah <laughs> all that is um beautiful thank you thank you for sharing all that uh, again you know anyone <laughs> listening please look you'll you'll understand the the just the amazing nature of of what's being built, built with entheon and, and the design and aesthetic that's going into it um, so many questions that I have. One of them, just because it came up towards the end of what you were saying, Allison, use the word sacred. And, um, you know, it, what I want to ask is what, what 
makes something sacred or what is sacred? And I had a thought recently um, about what makes something sacred. And and from the perspective of like being a a, a, a lawyer, you know, it's a sacred obligation uh, or or anything that has that sacred obligation as a, as a parent. And, and what I came to is uh, when the consequences of that obligation or the benefits more specifically, you know, extend to many more people than just the two people you know, participating in whatever interaction. That's what makes something sacred. What That's when the obligation to have that reverence comes um, to it because there's more considerations than the immediate ones. That, that That's just one of the ways I started to try and conceive of what makes something sacred. I know that's an incomplete answer, but it was something that gave some perspective on it. And I would love to hear um, through your lenses what what is sacred? Well, just re- sacred is. I mean, you have a great definition, I'm sure, but basically, holy in a special way, connected with God in a special way, because it doesn't just mean people. It 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 means buildings and objects. We have altars that are sacred, sacred objects. They're they're holy in a special way. What would you say? I yeah, uh, and I think that sacred is also uh, the formless. You know, when we, like you were you were suggesting, when the moral gravity of the context that you gather in is such that you're bonded with your uh, community or with those who are gathering, you recognize the solemn obligations that you have to each other. You recognize the necessity of truth in matters. You know, like in medicine, if you're a doctor and you discover cancer, you don't want bullshit. You want the truth, you know. So in areas of great moral and personal uh, and physical gravity, uh, this is when I think we have this higher sense of, of uh, what am I called to? Right. What is my calling? And and love is bound up in that. So I think love turns a thing sacred. It's it's love of of what you can bring to life and what service you can uh, bring. It's something sacred is devotional. It's it's the uh, it's when God is or or a uh, a kind of atmosphere of connectedness of unity and transcendence uh is upon a subject or a person or uh, a group a church is supposed to be a sacred gathering place you know a place where you can acknowledge your oneness you know, we need, we want places to feel safe to acknowledge these deep insights that we've had to, of our connectedness. And that's, uh, that sacred conversation is not something you have 
um, everywhere normally. You know, it's something that you have with with the initiates that you have uh, bonded with and who who share the meanings that you do. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's uh, I think those are are fantastic answers, and it, it's 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 so hard to articulate succinctly because it's so amorphous and, and, you know, words are an imperfect way to try and approximate it. Um, but you, you, I'm just going to pick up on a couple of words uh, that you mentioned there because it, it tied into another question that I had, I had ready, which was you, you talked about love and, and devotion or devotionals. Uh, and I saw you recently posted on Twitter a statement that relationships endure when partners reflect upon each other as sacred mirrors, encouraging each other's strengths and reaching higher within themselves. Um, I'd love for you to elaborate on that. And that's a question for both of you. Uh, and then... The, the extension is, you know, what else do, do the two of you do to maintain the strength of, of your relationship beyond just looking upon each other as sacred mirrors? Well, the sacred mirrors um, were painted by Alex, all of them, except for a little guest appearance that I made at the last one uh, with my secret writing. But they came out of a performance that we were doing together called Life Energy. Alex gave his first lecture there ever, and it was in 1978. And we also had other experiments. We did like, you know, interactive. It was a, really our first like bring a community together and do an interactive experience of group energy and, and, and uh, life energy. The performance was called Life Energy and was in a gallery in Boston. And, um, but the, the highlight, the thing that we both noticed on the way home from, you know, walking home from this gallery, um, we noticed that the charts that Alex had done were like one of the favorite things of, of the, you know, the evening program that we had created with multi things going on. And the, the charts were these two charts that Alex drew in ink on really nice paper that he put up on the wall. They were maybe seven feet tall by four feet wide. And they had these six foot figures on them. One of them was the nervous system. You know, I like, you know, cause he was a, being a medical illustrator at the time or no, you weren't, you were working at Harvard at the time, but soon to become a medical illustrator. But then the other one was the, uh, esoteric systems of the body, you know, the chakras and life and, and acupuncture meridians and points and auras, you know, three layers. But there was an ink drawing. It was just no color, just ink. Yeah. People would stand in front of them. We encouraged this with a little sign, but people would stand in front of them with their arms in the anatomical position and reflect on their inner systems. And they loved it. They did this. And on the way home... Allison basically <laughs> uh, noticed that and was trying to reclaim what I, I was, you know, feeling bad about the performance. And she said, what you ought to do is a series of paintings based on the charts, you know. And uh, so it could give you the body, mind, spirit of a person, you know. And later, she named them the Sacred Mirrors. So that's how the name Sacred Mirrors and the idea of of encapsulating basically a mystical experience into a sequence of artworks uh, came about. It was Alex's inspiration. But it was ten, Alex, 10 years he painted to, to satisfy that <laughs> concept. Right. And we, we met in an art class called Conceptual Mixed Media Performance. 
So we were, you know, that's where we lived. You know, the concept, the concept was first, and it it took you, you know, you did a lot of other things at the same time, but you did paint those paintings, and then we immediately proceeded to. We had a build vision frames. on. We had a vision on MDMA. That's what it was. Yeah. Basically, okay. that said, "Oh, you must do a chapel." You know, basically, okay. we had just sold the sacred mirrors, and we realized, "Oh shit, we can't sell the sacred mirrors." They're supposed to be in a chapel for the people. How are you going to do our installation? If we sell it, the guy would put them all in storage and just put the psychic energy system up in his apartment or something. You know, it was just like more money being offered than we'd ever been offered before. And after MDMA, the next day, it was like, (laughs) no, 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 cancel that contract. We're not, we can't do this. So then here we are. Yep. Uh, That was 1985. So now it's. 2022. We did have a five-year exhibition of them at, uh, you know, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And that was, came first. And by doing that, we were offered, um, we well, we weren't offered. We were offered that space in Manhattan to do the exhibition. And then we raised the money while we were there. Because people seeing them like that, I mean, made it easier for us to convince people to help us. And we had big crowds there. Yeah. You know, big parties, events all the time. And we were traveling. So we raise the money to have a place where we could actually build an enduring sanctuary of visionary art to uplift a global community, which is our mission statement. And uh, so we, you know, but we had to have land to do that. We realized after a five-year rental, you know, (laughs) and then they kick you out. Yeah. Now there's a, there's a lot to do if you want to make it enduring. So, so that's been the, I mean, look, all of this is an experiment. It's good grief. You know, I'm so grateful. We, we had no idea we could get this far, you know, and, and uh, so the community is expanding. And uh, your, your question, though, was about, uh, I think, being uh, sacred mirrors right. for each other. Yeah, what is a sacred and, mirror? And, uh, you know, what do you, what do you see in a sacred mirror, I think, as your soul, you know, or, or whatever is the most essential and and uh meaningful part of oneself you know the love part you know the heart and so you uh look at each other as much as possible you know through the lens of the soul through the lens of love and that's the you know that's the whole thing i think it's a practice you know you just uh, keep continuing to look at the world that way and, and certainly each other. Well, we reflect on each other. We, you know, like, like we, you know, I see my worst of myself in me when, you know, when I act that away with you and same reverse, you know, you see, you see yourself reflected in the other, in the good and the bad, you know, you see the good when you're being good. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. I, I like, I like the, concept and I try to work with it about everybody in my life being a, a reflection on on me in some not not talking about me but holding up a, a mirror to me to help me see who I am and what I do and what moves me uh, and what I want to stay away from and and certainly it achieves a new level of intensity when you're in a marriage um, or a long-term relationship or a deeply intimate yes, relationship yeah. like that which makes it 
more powerful and and also much more provocative <laughs> at, at times uh, in terms of hitting highs yeah. and lows. Well, yeah, we've been together since 1975, and so it's a it's a definitely a transformative path. You don't wind up being the same person you started out. No, yeah. better, hopefully. <laughs> better, really. And and I think that's really the goal. We just did a relationships uh, online uh, workshop with our members. And, and um, you know, it is, uh, it is so important to remember that the real goal is personal transformation in the relationship. So when you get really frustrated with the other person, you just have to remember that it's about your transformation. Don't yeah. forget, you know, you're supposed to be coming out of this a better person. Whatever they do, you know, you hope that they will too. And we've been so, I think, fortunate that we both feel that way because we both evolve. You know, we both evolved to be better than who we were when we when we met and to learn. You know, I mean, you know, we were just giving examples the other night, you know, that, uh, you know, I come from a more, you know, like an ethnic background, Jewish, and, you know, there's Russian anger and there's all that stuff that's, you know, in there built into me and my, that, that helps to fuel my ambition and, you know, and my, you know, excitement about the future and things like that. But it also causes me some difficulty. And Alex came from a different kind of background. I would, if I'm, since I'm talking, I could typify it as, you know, White Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Protestant. What can you say? You know, I mean, he, you know, Methodist and 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 you know, kind of withdrawn, a little passive, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But we both, you know, come toward each other so much. Alex is available to his not only his anger, but his also his ability to you know express himself in many ways. And I think I've toned it down, you know, really been able to, you know, in reflection of Alex, who's, you know, who, who, I mean, I met a peaceful man. Now he's a much more <laughs> self-expressed man. And I think I'm self-expressed, but in an easier way. I've always been self-expressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I, I mean, I'm, I come from a Jewish background, partly Russian, partly Czechoslovakian. And, and my wife is, you know, Irish, English, there's some other pieces in there as well, but uh, probably a lot of the, the same dynamics uh, coming out at various points along the way. Um, in, in the workshop, uh, the, the uh, I don't, I'm going to say couples, but I don't think that's the word you used, the, the workshop you just did. What, what other, what other relationships. relationships? Because like we you? opened it up to relationships as parents, relationships to our our parents, you know, like how do we, you know, and, and, and relationship to our friends and coworkers too. So, and, and just the sacred relationship of oneself partnership with oneself yeah. right? and, okay. and with God, or if you, if you somehow, you know, uh, see those things as separate, you know, yeah. uh, it's the, those, what makes a relationship sacred basically. Yeah. What kind of exercises, um, without maybe sharing the secret sauce, do you do in those kind of things? Because I think uh, those are really transformative. Well, we we do a lot of exercises. We do a lot of various uh, personal practices as well. I think that you know we we kind of older, but we I've always started meditating when I was nineteen. So we don't we do yoga and, and meditate every day. Okay. We. Uh, we make art every day and every night we make art together in the studio. And um, 
So having a routine in your life that includes your partner is good. Also, I mean, for us, to have common, a common interest. I mean, the fact that we had this, this experience that sent us into like, how are we going to, we had separate jobs. We, we worked on other, for other people. We did all that. We did that quite a bit, but, uh, but we had this goal, you know, that we wanted to create the temple. And, uh, and so that was, you know, kind of a sideline and became a nonprofit organization in 1996, but was still separate from our business, our A. Gray Company business that we, you know, where we were working in all, all the things that we did, teaching and um, travel opportunities and speakers fees and, but also anything. It all went into one, one company and then Cosm came along. And, and, uh, and yeah, and, and then everything consumed. became, yeah, it's like yeah. the black, the, uh, the, yeah, it's the cosmic vacuum of, uh, of cosm for us, you know, but it, but it gave us a thing that transcends us personally. It gave us this amazing, you know, context of a church, you know, like, well, we may not be getting along at this moment, you know, but we both want to do this thing. So, mm, okay, we'll get along. Nobody's (laughs) leaving. This is, this is more important than this, than this argument, you know? And I, and I think that people have to know that because people love our relationship and they always ask us about it. And you have to know that when you're in business with somebody, my parents were in business together for 25 years. So when you're in business with somebody, you, you know, you, it's day long. There's the personal relationship and then there's the, the love life and then there's the, the making money and then, then there's the being parents. And it's like, it's very integral and it can be absolutely bliss. So if you think that, you you know, monogamy is not for you, it's, I, I'm never one to, uh, to criticize, you know, whatever works for you. But I'm telling you, monogamy and loyalty and having a career together and sticking it out, you know, when we're disappointed in each other for whatever reason, but still staying the course. And luckily, you know, we've been very fortunate, not just fortunate, but motivated not to become addicts or, you know, have, have uh, you know, um, loyalty problems. We've never had fidelity problems or loyalty problems. It's really a good idea to avoid that. <laughs> it's just too, it's just too consuming. There's you know? a hole right there. <laughs> Don't step in it. Step around it. It's a pitfall <laughs> of marriage. You know yeah. what I mean? You may keep it interesting. It's your job. How about that? Yeah. You know, it's like, keep it interesting. If you feel like you're bored, you know, use your imagination and really, you know, <laughs> You have to be a, a, an individual too. Yeah. We share a studio. We don't just share an office. We share a studio. We used to share a desk <laughs> across from each other. We bought a partner's desk. I mean, you know, so, you know, and it, it, it's confronting. There's no getting around it. Alex mm-hmm. and I don't always agree. <laughs> and our staff and everybody around us knows that. And they also know that we love each other greater than any difficulty or pitfall that we may have fallen into, you know, we, we, that is singular and, and, and ever present. Unconditional. I love you no matter, no matter what. That's yeah. all. It's just, that's what you promise to do when you get married. Yeah. And, but and, when you're tripping, you yeah. understand that that's all there is, you know, it's, you know, you're made of infinite love. Oh, I'm going to withhold some of my infinite stuff here, you know, from us. No, you can't do it. Right. You know, 
Well, you can accomplish so much when you have what we call the third force. It's the it's the mind that comes together because you know you know I I may have uh, specialties or 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 even that Alex, you know, and Alex has his specialties. We both, we try to, we try to bring whatever we have to bear. Yeah. And I think that the third force is kind of a, you know, a spiritual operative, you know, or the possibility of community uh, surfing together with uh, people who have a common aim. So that's um, how I feel like, You know, you can look in one way, you know, like that we've willed it all into existence. On the other hand, I look at it and say, look, we got the good fortune of being given a vision early in our lives, really early, like 1976, like some of these visions that are in the chapel and earlier are being enshrined in a sense. And so... Our, we're integrating our psychedelic experience that we had when we were in our 20s, you know, and it's still unfolding. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I, <laughs> we, we were very fortunate on the podcast to have uh, Dr. Andy Weil um, on very mm-hmm. early on. He's actually been on twice. He's, he's been very generous with our time, especially when we were getting off the ground and I certainly didn't know what I was doing and I only slightly less don't know what I'm doing right now. But, um, you know, one of the things he said was that psychedelics played an important role in his life. But at this point, he doesn't use them. He doesn't need them. He kind of got what he needed from them. Um, and he's still a big advocate and all that kind of stuff, but it, they just don't play a part in his, in his life right now. And I'm wondering, you know, what what role do, do psychedelics still play directly in your lives? Obviously, integrating from the 1970s is an ongoing and lifelong experience. There's no doubt about that. But I'm wondering if they still play an important part in your life right now. And, and uh, you know, what... Yes, uh, I, I just want to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They play an important part in our life now. But I wanted to give a little quickie plug to Dr. Weil who changed my life, okay, (laughs) seriously. And anybody out there who is having any issues and is looking for the possibility of spontaneous healing, read Spontaneous Healing. It really really, uh, changed the way I looked at at, uh, my own personal health. And uh, and 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 I'll, you know, a spoiler alert, give you the takeaway, but it's so worth reading because you you can't believe the kind of research that he's proposing and looking at, even though it's quite an old book by now. But the takeaway is, you know, um, well, I I just wanted to say that there is a chapter in that book that that features uh, uh, John Sarno's Healing Back Pain by John Sarno, which has given spontaneous healing to like 85% of the people who read it. Right. And he has, he has cures like this. Like he, he promotes stuff like this. And, and, uh, and I think that it's, it's the gift. It's looking for the gift in whatever the illness is that you have. I love that part of the book is, is that if you can find the gift, people who have achieved spontaneous healing, that means remarkable healing that was not expected and they healed from whatever. Um, they, they found the gift in the healing. You know, this has taught me before I I knew I had cancer. I was this, I became this and it was a great gift to me. And I got better, did all the things that doctors told me to do also. And then I got better. 
So, so I, I thought that was a remarkable book and I, and I thank Dr. Weil for it. And I understand his feeling about not, you know, like he's got a lot of work to do, but yeah. So what do you have to say about, um, about our, 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 also, yes, that is an affirmative, you know, (laughs) they're still important. You know, the thing is, is, uh, psychedelics are visual, intensely visual, overwhelmingly visual, actually. Yeah. And so, uh, it is a, it's now that they're available in the 20th and 21st century to the common person, you know, who looks a little for them. Uh, it enables you to witness a perspective that is uh, undeniably one of the highest perspectives that he, humans are capable of. Yeah. You know, of, of this kind of inward journeying and seeing. So this new territory of seeing, I think, is of great interest to visual artists. For sure. You know, to attempt to begin to wrestle the the visual paradoxical, strange worlds that we encounter. And you're seeing in the newest kind of digital uh, animations and developments, even in the NFT worlds and in the, the worlds of... Uh, augmented reality and uh, AI, you know, uh, the psychedelic uh, kinds of ways of seeing, you know, and, and uh, a, a more uh, deliberate kind of um, classification of what's going on here. Because I think there's visual knowledge being transferred. Right. That a lot of what happens in the mystical experience is a is a visual and a being engagement, you know, with that visual that you're all immersed in, you know, you've come out of your shell and now your, your God stuff is being manipulated by the, by the greater force, you know, that there is, you have to surrender to it. And uh, so what it reveals is I think of tremendous interest to the, uh, to the visually uh, inform, informing the mind stream of the future. And I'm looking forward to the, the more intelligent artists uh, and visually oriented uh, filmmakers and various things like animators and things that, that uh, and, and the clinicians, like people like David Luke, they're trying to figure out what are the archetypes what are the visual things that recur and what is their meaning and how do we understand them? Because there's a whole, you know, uh, taxonomy of the visionary realm that Stan Groff was talking about and it's developing. So I think for the visual arts, for me, you know, this is a really interesting terrain and it's not because they're just visual. It's because they fuse the visual with the theological. Yeah, I think there's an art theology that is crystallizing in the new visionary art that artists are doing around the world because there it's an underground, round the world thing that's happening, and it's more or less the default 
medical illustration for the psychedelic experience. You know, right? Uh, that that that's that's incredibly interesting. You know, you, you it's just coming out this. from underground though too. Yeah. I have to say, it's not as underground as it used to be. We're just about to ha- uh, be a part of the, the Outsider Art Fair in New York City. The theme is psychedelic. <laughs> yeah, psychedelics are definitely. Um, of course, um, my prom that I that I was the chairman of in 1969 was also psychedelic. We had a psychedelic prom. Everything that's yeah. old. Is, well, the war on drugs on, definitely on. slowed down the the. Uh, arrival of the psychedelic dawn you know totally. but we need it now so de- so much yeah. I, I hope that we can you know preserve it and allow it to flower and not to wither you know and not to be repressed well we have to normalize it yeah. this is why they, that that organization so long ago named itself normal because you want it to be normal. I was just listening to Michael Pollan talking on on the um, on Being podcast, you know, where he's you know talking about normalizing. This is what we want to do. We want to talk to people about how useful and helpful and healing it is, and and talk about all the research that all of us knew early on. You know that it healed this, it healed that. It was it was it was changed me in this way and that way, and now all the studies are. You know, re-emerging are coming yeah. to to say that's the case. You know, and uh, yeah, that, that's I, I, that means, for the betterment of well people uh, and and sick people, without doubt, and, and, and that's sick people. Exactly the purpose of this podcast, which is trying to normalize the conversation and and also, I mean, the word normal has so much connotation to it, but make it normal for average people as well, which is like, there's still a lot of things about the psychedelic experience that I find are still out of reach for people, you know? And and so when they can see a, a Michael Pollan or an Andy Weil or an Alex and Allison Gray, be like, oh, okay. You know, these are successful, relatable people of achievement, which is still like a, a paradigm that probably invites question of how much we value that. But even in the context of our current worldview, it's like, oh, it's not inconsistent to have psychedelics and still be perfectly straight in some ways, you know, in terms of the straight and narrow and, and on the the right path, whatever that's defined as. And, and we probably want to reframe what the right path is. But in the meantime, if we get people comfortable with this, that's ultimately the objective of you know, what, what I'm trying to do through the podcast and field trip and beyond. So we definitely yeah. appreciate what you say there. A great service. I mean, the betterment of well people, you know, I would think that do any of us not have PTSD somewhere on the spectrum? <laughs> you know, did anybody wow. ever get slapped or, or made fun of or, or feel humiliated or, you know, we all are enduring, you know, some degree of, you know, PTSD, even if it's very mild and we function perfectly in life. Yeah. And so it's a very helpful tool. And if people could see it like that, they would see it as normal. Yeah. Because they'd say, well, that just, that's just the way life is and we could become better people. Absolutely. And uh, there's so much benefit that psychedelics have shown for those who are uh, traumatized and addicted and uh, depressed. And myself, that's how I came to uh, LSD. That was my first psychedelic experience in your apartment, you know, and I was severely depressed, nearly suicidal. And 
you know, prayed to a God that I didn't think existed. And basically it showed up in my acid trip. So I was very grateful that saved my life 21 years ago, you know, from my severe depression. So, um, and periodically, uh, now it's, it's informed me in a number of ways, but so have all the world spiritual paths. Sometimes uh, psychedelics can open up, can open us to the possibility that, oh, look, maybe they understood this too. Maybe other people understood about spirit. Well, Alex had a mystical experience on his first LSD trip in my apartment. And it was in the middle of a party. So set and setting wasn't quite, you know, like... (laughs) Uh, although I think you felt safe there. You sat on the couch. You really didn't interact with people and you were tripping mm-hmm. pretty, pretty heavily. And, and you had my doll there and you were playing with my doll and you didn't really talk to anybody. And I, before that, years before that, like six years before that, I had had, you know, but I think you had the intention is what I wanted to say. Oh, I you know, had the need. Well, you, you asked for God to come to you. Yeah. So at least right. you didn't, may not have had the right set and setting, but you had the intention. I, absolutely. You had asked God to come. Yeah. And, and, and it occurred to you. And six years before that, I had read the Ram Dass book, Be Here Now, and where I took the suggestion, I'm not sure if he really suggested it right out, but I took the suggestion that it was, a, it was time to try LSD in a brand new way that I had never tried in the six years I had been tripping, or no, it was maybe three years at that point, but I had never tried going into a dark room and having a solo journey. Right. And so, and, and, and in order to see the white light, so the intention being to see the white light. And I did have the set and setting because Ram Dass instructed me in that. Although I had had all those other trips and I feel like I had evolved and all that, but I'd never really had a mystical experience. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I, I felt like everyone was a teaching. I learned things about myself and I evolved in all the different ways, going to parties and whatever, and never harmed me. Um, but I did try it in this other way after reading in 1971, his book and there was secret writing talking to me through light. You know, it was like, you know, God exists. This is what people call God. It only has three letters. That's what people call it. Okay. You can say it's, you know, I don't believe in it, but it's like, there it is. Infinite intelligence. And infinite interconnectedness with all beings and things, all that stuff. You know, so it was all, you know, this never left me either. I mean, that's the thing. If you, if you let it, it just, magnifies as you get older it 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 marinates you can just go outside and you're like tripping you know what i mean here you know you you feel that interconnectedness with people when you're in a big group even yeah it leaves the doors of perception ajar yeah (laughs) especially if you continue to integrate it but yeah it's, it's amazing that you can you know if you do do the work you can tap back into it without even having to you know ingest anything um and and not yeah. reason not to. Yeah, because we're tripping all the time, some, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a, like we're on DMT now. Yeah. We don't know how it works. Yeah. I mean, your brain is saturated in DMT, just like serotonin and, and dopamine and all the rest of them. I think that's really mysterious. I think that's amazing, you know, that, that the psychedelics are part of our consciousness-making process. Absolutely. You know, and I think that they give you a clue have have you been into Don Hoffman's stuff about uh, reality and uh, this uh, kind of uh, taking 
mathematical uh, models of uh, evolution, okay. basically, and modeling, you know, our realm. And he was somehow coming to the conclusion that it, that it's there's zero percent of likelihood that we're seeing r- reality. That basically, um, just like uh, we're seeing the desktop, okay, in the manifest world, we're not seeing the guts of the computer, right? Right. Yeah, we're seeing an interactive desktop. But what we know to be true is that there are uh, conscious agents that we're in a network of relationship with. Hmm. That's what we know. So fast. So I, I think that's very interesting. Okay. Psychedelics can give us a perspective on that ultimate reality that, uh, that this illusion is uh, the desktop of. Alex and Allison, I feel like I could talk uh, to you for hours about this, but I think we should cut it off there so we can keep it into our uh, our <laughs> podcast. But uh, I would love for the opportunity. Even uh, you know, I didn't even ask probably seventy percent of the questions that we had written down. We had just kind of let the conversation go, which is exactly what I wanted. But there's a lot of stuff that I would love to dig into with you at some point. Okay. So I hope you'd consider coming back on the podcast another time and, and we oh, can sure. delight in these conversations again. But in the meantime, I do want to thank you for for taking the time uh, with us. I want to thank you for all the work that you do uh, in advancing the dialogue and, uh, you know, shifting our consciousness. I, I think, you know, when I, when I, I did a gut check last week about what I'm hoping to achieve personally, um, with this podcast, it really is about trying to talk to the people who are, you know, altering our consciousness, shifting the future and, and bending the arc of history. And, and without doubt, uh, the two of you are, are luminaries in, in, in that regard. So thank you for everything that you have done and, and will continue to do. And, um, Best of luck getting Entheon built. If there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. Well, I want to tell people where they can find us at Cosm.org. And I want to tell people where they can see our programs at uh, on YouTube, uh, the Cosm.tv channel. Okay. So uh, we hope to uh, be with you. If you become a member, you can join us for monthly uh, art church. And um, we do have the full moon uh, broadcasts. Everyone's welcome. We hope we uh, see you again, Ronan. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Ronan. It's been said that the purpose of art is to provide what life does not. And in speaking with Allison and Alex, I couldn't help but get the sense that it's not just the purpose of art to provide what life does not, but also the purpose of the artist. I was genuinely touched and inspired by the lengths that Alex and Allison go to try and engage people in what they find to be the sacred and meaningful aspects of life, from simply the creation of their art, to the creation of the community that surrounds them, to the building of Entheon, a physical space designed to engage the sacred and the mystical. Alex and Allison very much are providing to many what life presently does not. But more, through their marriage of many decades, they are also providing to each other what may be missing in each of their individual lives by providing each other with a sacred mirror through which to see themselves in a different light. 
And it seems that has built the foundation of a marriage that exhibits resilience like few I've ever seen. Which reminds me of something Tom Robbins said that seems fitting for some reason. He said, when the mystery of the connection goes, love goes. It's that simple. This suggests that it isn't love that is so important to us, but the mystery itself. The romance of new love, the romance of solitude, the romance of objecthood, the romance of ancient pyramids and distant stars are means of making contact with the mystery. When it comes to perpetuating it, however, I got no advice, but I can and will remind you of the two most important facts I know. Everything is a part of it, and it's never too late to have a happy childhood. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and Amanda Elliott, and associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, and Macy Baker. Special thanks to Cast Media, and of course, many thanks to Alex and Allison Gray for joining us today. To learn more about their work, visit cosm.org. That's C-O-S-M.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.